Hello, and welcome to our weekly podcast of Who's Here in the Hamptons. I'm Dan Retiner, your host, broadcasting from my home in the Hamptons, where I have lived for over 55 years. I've written a dozen books about this glorious place, and I've seen it grow through the years from small tourist towns, quaint fishing villages, and a summer playground for high society, to what it is today, a world-class resort for celebrities, artists, musicians, authors, and billionaires. In my podcast, I will bring you interviews with not only these people, but also prominent local people who have helped shape the Hamptons. Welcome to Dan's Talks. Uh, My guest on the podcast today is Bill Bratton, the former police commissioner of both Los Angeles and New York City, and uh, one directly after the other. Where are you from? Are you an East Coast person or a West Coast person? Born and raised in Boston, Massachusetts, that uh, began my police career in Boston at that time, uh, 1970. But uh, Boston kid, Dorchester. <laughs> How did you wind up in Los Angeles as a result of your work in Boston? Well, I think much of your audience uh, knows me more for uh, my New York commissioner experiences, 94, 96 with Giuliani, and then more recently with de Blasio. But 2002, uh, I applied for the open position of police chief in Los Angeles. I've been working uh, with that department as a consultant for a year. I was in the private sector. And uh, after a very grueling selection process, I was uh, selected as the chief of police for a five-year term. And then I was reappointed after five years for a second five-year term, of which I only did two years, and then came back to New York. Did you find um, them very different? Or I mean, crime is crime. That's going to be this crime, but uh, the departments are very different. The community is very different. Los Angeles is 480 square miles. New York is 300. Uh, New York has eight and a half, now almost nine million people. LA has about four million. New York had, when I was commissioner, 38,000 police officers. When I was chief in Los Angeles, I had 9,000. So I had, uh, in some respects, I described it like Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, that uh, New York, I was Fred Astaire, and uh, L.A., I was Ginger Rogers in high heels dancing backwards. And, uh, <laughs> so L.A. LA was the more difficult challenge. Fewer resources, but also crime was different. L.A. is plagued with horrific gang violence. New York doesn't have the same organized gang violence in terms of the black gangs and Latino gangs. They have a lot of these smaller groups, and they're not as uh, problematic as the gangs in Los Angeles. During your first term here in New York, you uh, brought in certain new uh, ways of dealing with crime. Could you talk about that and then how that played out when you went to Los Angeles? Sure. That uh, the, the secret of the success in the early 90s on dealing with uh, crime in New York City was first in the subway. The crime turnaround began in the subway when I was chief of police there in 1990. And then because of that success, I was noticed by Giuliani, who was campaigning for mayor and when he was elected in 93. He hired me as his first commissioner to do the same thing in the streets we'd done in the subways. What did we do? We went after only not only serious crime, which had been uh, the, the goal over the 70s and 80s, and they were not successful dealing with serious crime, but I also went after disorder, graffiti, fear evasion, uh, the homeless problems below ground. And that's the secret. You have to deal with both crime and disorder at the same time. So uh, that was, I recall that because I'm a New Yorker born and bred, and I saw the difference and the numbers went way down. The park became safe and it was quite- Exactly. We were very fortunate under Giuliani. We had a parks commissioner who loved parks, 
and the parks, the uh, Central Park Conservancy, Bryant Park, uh, the beautiful parks that had been basically uh, abandoned in the 80s came back. And New York is blessed with having a great park system. Did, did you apply those principles when you went out to L.A.? I certainly did. Uh, applied them down in their skid row, which is probably the worst skid row, homeless, drug addicted, emotionally disturbed population in America, as far as the concentration of it. And uh, we were actually making great progress uh, controlling the disorder, which you do that, stop the small crimes before they become big crimes, makes a lot of difference. But uh, what happened in Los Angeles, and they're feeling the effects of it now, 30, 20 years later, is the courts interfered with what we were trying to do, that uh, a lot of the enforcement activities were deemed to be not appropriate. And uh, one of the problems in Los Angeles is, unlike New York, New York is required by law to count the homeless once a year and ensure that they have a bed for every homeless person, a shelter. Los Angeles has never done that. So the courts in Los Angeles said, well, since you're not providing beds or shelter, they can sleep in your public parks, they can sleep on your sidewalks, they can sleep on the lawn of City Hall, that uh, because government has failed to take care of these people. So the homeless problem in Los Angeles is humongous, to use that term, compared to what New Yorkers think they're facing uh, here. And it is to this day. As I... And it's getting worse, getting worse out there. Subways have been taken over by the homeless. Uh, at least the MTA is fighting hard to keep the homeless under control in some ways. In Los Angeles, they've given up. Then you've, you came back to New York City and uh, you continue to use the same philosophy. I remember uh, was uh, stop and search was in effect, which was very effective in terms of gun stopping gun violence. And I think it came up a cropper with the war. Tell us about that. Yeah, the term you're talking about is stop, question, and frisk. And it was uh, uh, complained about, uh, particularly in the minority communities, that it was being overused, that it was being abused. There was a federal court case that was uh, decided just before I was appointed commissioner by then the duly elected Mayor de Blasio, who had campaigned on the issue that he was going to significantly curtail the amount of stock question frisk. Uh, I had uh, worked with him to ensure him that we could reduce it significantly and still be able to reduce crime and disorder. And we did. But it was very controversial to this day, remains controversial, but yep. it is an essential tool for police. You cannot police effectively without it. And it's legal. It's, uh, it just has to be done appropriately. And that was the problem. The courts found it was not being done appropriately at that time. Um, how do you view um, the police uh, situation since you left it? There's been a lot of uh, negative things about the police, about um having them do certain things with other departments in tow, such as mental illness. What's your view of all that? The things that are most concerning to people in the city of New York, for that matter, many of the cities and towns in New York State, involving homeless, emotionally disturbed, the drug addicted. And a lot of that activity occurs in public spaces, so people see it, they're disturbed by it. Uh, if not controlled, it leads oftentimes to significant crime. And police departments around the country would like to get out of the business of dealing with those three issues. But because government has failed so miserably over the last 50 years, as those problems have exploded and expanded, police are kind of the catch-all. That uh, as the rest of government fails at it, uh, give it to the police. He'll do it. Remember the old TV commercial, give it to Mikey, he'll eat anything? Well, basically, when all else fails, give it to the police. And 
we're just not equipped or trained to deal with it uh, correctly. And we get into a lot of trouble with it in terms of the mishandling. But what you're talking about is a lot of efforts now to try to join police up with homeless advocates, with clinicians, uh, medical people, to try and get the homeless off the streets to deal more effectively with the narcotics impaired. And uh, a lot of experimentation going on, but the reality is the problems are so huge that there is no quick fix to either one of the three, and all three are linked with each other. How is the city of New York? Because that's, I think, of most interest to uh, listeners of this particular podcast. How, how is how's it going? I know you're out of office, so but you can observe how is, is, is crime back on the upswing? Is it holding low or what on with it? Uh, unfortunately, uh, it's unsettling at the moment. Has been uh, for 25 straight years. Crime went down uh, and continued to go down. Prison population in the state was reduced by 40%. Micah's population reduced by 60%. Why? Because police control the behavior. Then for some reason in 2019, uh, uh, WizKids in Albany, our legislature, passed criminal justice reform, well intended to try and make, uh, make up for mistakes of the past. But with crime going down dramatically, uh, the uh, prison population declining, they were basically trying to fix a problem that was already being fixed. And what do they do, as usually happens in Albany and the New York legislature? They screwed it up to a fairly well. And then, unfortunately, in the progressive uh, city council of New York, they compound the problem. So you got leadership politically in New York State, leadership politically in the city that are messing it up, that the crime situation in New York, the disorder situation in New York City and state right now has been politically created. They would have you believe or try to believe that COVID caused all the problems. Sorry, problem, the crime increases in New York began dramatically after the legislature got in and started messing around with it and refused to try and fix the mess they created. So the problem in New York City, good news is this year, murders and shootings are down, but they're down versus last year. They're still up versus 2018 before criminal justice reform. Meanwhile, other crimes, shoplifting, et cetera, fair evasion, uh, graffiti, they're exploding. They're up 30, 40%. So uh, the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I'm not sure many people are finding New York City particularly beautiful at the moment because there's just so much disarray on our city streets and subways. Uh, Mayor Adams is trying. Uh, it's like he's uh, swimming upstream against Niagara Falls, pouring down from Albany, because as much as he's trying to get his arms around the problems. They just keep expanding the problem. But it's nowhere near the way it was when you first came in with Giuliani, I imagine. Oh, guaranteed. It's a lot less crime, but the fear, the uh, discomfort is still out there. And we have the COVID impact with like Madison Avenue, a third of the stores are, are, not, are not open on Madison Ave. Good news is the tourists are coming back. Tourists are, are fairly resilient that uh, they're not picking up uh, a lot of signals that everyday New Yorkers are picking up about concern about disorder in the streets. And that will be very helpful to recovery in New York with the tourists coming back. And we'll probably feel that out in the Hamptons this year because there'll be a lot more people coming uh, out to the Hamptons even than the, uh, now that COVID is hopefully uh, behind us. Tell me uh, a little bit about um, when you first started coming out to, uh, to the Hamptons. I know you have a home with your wife, Ricky Hyman in Quag or East Quag? Yeah, actually, we started off in Quag. We came back from California. There was nothing available. So we ended up in a beautiful home over in Hampton Bays, which we love. And Ricky and I are on the go all the time. So he was apt to find us on any given day in Quag, East Hampton, West Hampton, that 
we very seldom stay home. We're always moving around. So we, we get to enjoy all of the Hamptons. Well, the, you know, the, 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 the um, Robon Quag is, it's neither here nor there. It's sort of like, it's sort of like in a, a very quiet place. People, I've heard people tell me about it, that you wake up in the morning in Quag and you say, well, um, let's go to, let's go to East Hampton. No, it's too far. Or they'll say, all right, how about West Hampton Beach? Oh, there's nothing going on there. Okay, well, let's just stay home, be here in Quagra. Vicki and I measure everything in miles. So, for example, we'll, at least once a week, we get over to Estes over in Sag Harbor. Yeah. Uh, it's a 14-mile drive. We go to Hampton Maid when that's open all the time. What do you um, like? So, what do you like about the Hamptons? Uh, basically, the variety, the beauty of it, for one. Uh, gorgeous. Yeah. We're, only, we're two and a half miles from the beach. We live on uh, Shenacock. And it's just, uh, it's gorgeous out there. It reminds me in many respects of Cape Cod as a kid growing up, was on Cape Cod all the time. And many, simil- many similarities. And uh, I, me- I remember my first exposure to the Hamptons was 1990. A uh, very good friend, Dr. Dick Richard Winter, had a home on Flying Cross Road. And he invited me out for a weekend, spend time with him and his wife, Bella. And we're driving out, and never been out uh, past Queens and Long Island. And uh, actually, I didn't even know the Queens was part of Long Island. I was, I, was, uh, was, I was waiting to cross over to Long Island, having not really guys realizing we'd already been crossed over onto Long Island. In any event, we're coming out of Long 27. Then we come up onto the Lane Road. And at that time, still a lot of potato fields in the area. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm saying, what the hell is everybody raving about the Hamptons? Look at this. It's just a, looks like a, a, you know, going through all these farms. And then we swing on a flying cross road and some beautiful homes there. And then, Late in the day, he takes me up to uh, Southampton uh, Village for lunch. And uh, that's when the charm really hit, that the idea that this very special place that was uh, at one time nothing but farmland. And it's uh, amazing how it's progressed over the years. Well, when you think about it, the uh, towns were laid out out here at the time uh, by New Englanders. So what you do have here um, are basically your New England villages with town village greens. And there's a lot in common with what There's a lot, a lot in common with Cape Cod, but the uh, same thing that you could literally, uh, if you were a stranger and plank down on Long Island, uh, out in the Hamptons or plank down in Cape Cod, once you get over the bridge, bridges, that you'd have a hard time distinguishing the two but, uh, because they, there's so many similarities. Are there a lot of are there much in the way of windmills up in that part of the world up in no, Cape? No, Jones, you, you're not going to see that. And that's one of the fascinating things: the windmills that uh, as you come into uh, water mill or wherever that uh, the windmills that uh, you know, fascinating aspect of uh, out in the Hamptons. Well, I just was just asking if it was comparable to anything along the shoreline up in Cape Cod. Or they have do they have windmills up in Cape Cod? Uh, they do not. Cape Cod uh, would be known more for lighthouses in terms of the way the Cape is structured, that the lighthouse is out of Provincetown, and then you get out to Nantucket, Martha's Vineyard. Uh, that's another aspect of Cape Cod that you, uh, when you leave Cape Cod, uh, you head out to Martha's Vineyard, and then for me, head out to Nantucket. So you've literally got three uh, uh, wonderfully uh, uh, beautiful places to visit in Massachusetts. And here, uh, I guess we'd go to Block Island, would be the closest uh, going off of uh, the end of Long Island in Montauk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, have you written a book about uh, all of the, all of your experiences? Oh, sure. I've actually written three. Uh, all co-authored. Uh, two of them co-authored with my friend and colleague Peter Nobler, who also uh, was a uh, co-author with Ricky on her book uh, "Fairy Tales Can't Come True." 
Uh, my first book was uh, turning uh, uh, turn around about my experiences through 1996 with Giuliani. It's a, it's a biography. Uh, the second book was a management book around 2012 on how to be successful at uh, management in the uh, era of the 21st century and internet, et cetera. And the most recent one, the one you're probably familiar with, is the Call the Profession. It's a memoir. And in that memoir, uh, interviews with many people who I've interacted with over the course of my 50-year career. And the three together provide a very interesting, I think, look, see, and perspective to my experiences at the last 55 years of criminal justice policing in America in uh, several of America's largest cities, Boston, New York, and Los Angeles. Have you been consulting since you left the New York department? I'm sure that uh, I head up uh, the risk division of a uh, CEO advisory firm based up on Park Avenue, uh, Teneo. Teneo is uh, Greek Latin for to hold close, so we hold our clients close. So my division deals very specifically with CEOs on threats of cyber, executive protection, uh, all the all the things that the 21st century uh, uh, technology has created in terms of threats to business. So I'm still working full time. Ricky's working full time for CBS as the legal analyst. So uh, uh, I'm actually talking to you from down in Naples, Florida. She's flying up tonight from Naples to basically uh, do interviews with CBS. So we're at both, we're both 75 and still very much on the go. Great. Well, I'm even older than that. I'm still running around. <laughs> Well, thank you. for It keeps us young. Keeps us young. Thank you for being on the podcast. Uh, and uh, I'll see you soon. And uh, it was, I think these were very enlightening things you've been telling me about. And uh, appreciate you taking the time. Wonderful to see you. And we'll, we'll see you uh, on the island. Our favorite time coming up spring. It's here. If I, can, if I can only keep the deer off the front lawn, we were watching the deer this morning, the ring doorbell went off, there were five deer at our front door munching away. <laughs> so that's uh, one of the uh, uh, aspects of living out on Long Island, the deer population. Bye-bye. Okay. All the best.